My handle is Jonathan Blade. Welcome to my podcast. I've been sitting on doing a Man of Steel review for a while. I didn't have a guest this week, so this week seemed as good a time as any. Man of Steel is, of course, the 2013 Zack Schneider-directed reimagining of a cinematic Superman in the first film in the will-they-won't-they project that is Warner Brothers' DC big-screen extended universe. Man of Steel was a film created with the unenviable idea of reimagining a movie that a number of people didn't believe was in need of reimagining, and having to live in a world in which a cinematic earthquake in the form of Marvel's The Avengers had shifted the ground beneath its feet. So there are many, and perhaps a majority, of fans who feel that Man of Steel is not up to either challenge. But I am not one of those fans. I am enamored with the Man of Steel for many reasons, but I think the central one is that if I have the training resources and the creative vision, Man of Steel is pretty close to the film that I imagined that I would create. Now don't get me wrong, Man of Steel is, even for me, as a fan, deeply flawed. To my sensibilities, it is so beautiful and so earnest that I don't care, but there are big problems. The plot is riddled with, wait, what? moments, and there are small problems too, like Henry Cavill is not able to sustain his regionally unidentifiable American accent. It's just that the grand spectacle is so big, so stentorian, so picturesque that its brilliant light outshines any shade created by its shortcomings. Before we get to the actual film, I want to mention Hans Zimmer's score. The way he orally strides the story of Clark and the story of Kal-El, and I will give the critics one thing, and that is that this is the story of Clark reconciling those two parts of his being. I think that we could probably safely say that it is much more that than it is the idea that the reconciliation results in Superman. That should have been the second film. But the way Zimmer strides the two parts of the man with one of my favorite scores of all time is exemplary. So I know it's heresy to say this, but I think that I prefer Zimmer's call to adventure over John Williams' imperious King Superman march, which I still love. I still love it. And with that said, let's get to the movie. Man of Steel. So I sat down with my girlfriend who hadn't seen it before. And we uh, made some popcorn, we snuggled up on the, the sofa, and we watched Man of Steel. Now, the first thing that struck her was the production design. She said, this is beautiful. She thought the costumes were incredible. Just the, the overall look was incredible. And she asked me if it won any awards. And unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't win any awards. But yes, it definitely oh, it didn't win any Oscar. But it definitely should have. It was a... It is a beautiful movie. Uh, the movie starts with an amazing Hans Zimmer tune and childbirth. We see Superman's mother, Laura, Laura Van, giving birth to Kal-El, who grows up to be Superman. And then we meet Russell Crowe's Jor-El uh, as they celebrate the first natural childbirth on Krypton in many generations. It's a beautiful scene, and the visceral nature of the childbirth tells you that this is going to be a different kind of movie. The Krypton scenes are... Krypton is lovely. It's a, like a Flash Gordon fantasy world, so you've got 
science, you've got spacecraft, but you also have dragons. Jorel rides a pet dragon as he tries to retrieve the, the codec, which is a MacGuffin that contains the genetic code of all of Krypton's past and uh, Kryptonians past and present because he wants to send his son away from Krypton because Krypton's dying. He thinks his son is the future as a natural childbirth, railing against the genetic stagnation of the planet because of how uh, they've used birthing pods and preset destinies for all of the Kryptonians for several generations. So he steals this codec that has all this genetic information, instills it into his son. In this process, we meet General Zod, who's also angry at the ruling class, the bureaucrats of Krypton, because they've let the society stagnate. I don't know if he believes that the, that the planet is going to self-destruct or not, as Jarell believes and knows to be true, but they're both kind of, they're not at odds in their philo uh, philosophies. We meet Michael Shannon as Zod, and Michael Shannon is a great heavy. He's great in this movie. He doesn't get enough credit. I know he didn't like doing this role. It's not the kind of movie he wants to be in, but he's awesome. Krypton stuff is beautiful. Uh, the music uh, sets you up for what is to come. It's so energetic, so dynamic, so percussive. Hans Zimmer's soundtrack is super drum heavy. That's something that he explicitly wanted to be part of this movie. And it shows. And then, it, of course, we get a real taste for what Zack Schneider does uh, on screen. Uh, Zack Schneider paints his pictures uh, in pictures. So he uses splash page images, beautiful stills, uh, to establish what he wants to show in his movie. He wants everything to be iconic and beautiful, uh, the platonic ideal of whatever this this scene should be. And we see a lot of that in this beautiful Mo like Flash Gordon Mongo type uh, Krypton, it's lovely. So Krypton explodes, but Jorel and Laura are able to send Kal-el away in time. But before that happens, Zod and his ilk, because they were trying to commit a coup, are stopped by the controlling authorities. Zod kills Jorel. Zod and his co-conspirators are sent away to the Phantom Zone, which doesn't make any sense because they're safe in the Phantom Zone. When everybody on Krypton dies because the planet exploded, except for Jarrell, who was killed by Zod. Clark's ship flies through the cosmos, as we are aware. If we've seen the other movie or read any comic books, it almost shows the ship landing on Earth and then it cuts to the future because this is a different movie. It jumps around in time a little bit. The middle section of this movie is a combination of modern time and flashbacks as we establish who Clark Kent is as a man and a character how he was raised, how he became such an isolated person. Like, of course he's isolated because he's so different, but he's also isolated because his his father, with Kevin Costner's John Kent, Jonathan Kent, who is awesome as Jonathan Kent, Kevin Costner, kind of kills it. I know that people don't like his philosophy as Jonathan Kent, but he really loves his son and he really wants to protect his son, and that's what you need to take away from that. The, the, the kind of paranoia or maybe just distrust in humanity that he instills in his son just makes Clark a more interesting character, really. But we meet Jonathan Kent. We meet Diane Lane as Martha Kent, who is a little bit important in this film, more important uh, later, but 
I just find it interesting that they use Diane Lane for this role because she's perfect as a prairie woman, but she's she's hot. Like, she's not hot as Martha Kent, she's just a regular looking person, but they decided to get hot Diane Lane to play this prairie woman Martha Kent, and she's really good at it. I think all the actors are, are really cast quite well, except for maybe Amy Adams. She's a good actress, I don't really love her Lois Lane, but she's fine. So these idealized versions and idealized philosophies that they're sharing, uh, Clark, who's sitting on potential, both Jarrell tried to instill in Clark before he could realize it, and Jonathan Kent tried to instill in Clark after the fact that he is special and he's here for a purpose. For Jarrell, that purpose is for Clark to save both Krypton, the future of Krypton, because he has the genetic codec with him, and to save humanity, bringing them along with him. For Jonathan Kent to maybe be a savior of humanity, but to find his own way to get there. So we are introduced to how Clark became the person he was. We actually see Clark in adulthood do some very amazing things. Evidently he's done all these, these things all his life, just trying to help people. But in that, in exposing himself, he has to then leave and find a new identity because of the paranoia instilled into him by Jonathan Kent. He didn't think that humanity would accept him, and he's probably right, in the world that in which he lives. So we follow Clark through some, some adventures. Uh, we see him be petty as shit in one of the scenes. And I, I think it's interesting. I think it adds more texture to, the, to, to who this Superman is, and I'm fine with it. Ultimately, it might not lead to somebody who you think is going to be Superman, but he is, so you just accept it as a texture. Like, it makes him a more frightening individual to accept that he's human. Like, he's striving to be more than human, but he's human at his base. So he's, he's suffering, he's struggling with all those things as he's going through this. But our adventure leads to Clark finding a Kryptonian ship that was in the Kryptonian expansion, had made its way to Earth, it's been under the ice for 20,000 years. The government finds it, Clark goes and works with the government under funky circumstances, he forges some identification and then works with the drill team that tries to access the ship. He meets Lois Lane through this endeavor, uh, he boards the ship, she follows him on the ship, he uses the the USB thumb drive, <laughs> that's not what it is, but it's it's basically a um, control key that Jarrell sent to Earth with him that has Jarrell's consciousness transcribed to AI and like a bunch of other information and it has the House of L insignia which is the Superman symbol on it he uses it to uh, activate this ship he saves Lois Lane from some stuff on the ship he steals the or he takes the ship from out from underneath the government the ship uh, or Jarrell's consciousness through the ship teaches Kal-El about who he is and what his purpose in being on the Earth is. It bequeaths him his uh, Superman uniform and tells him that his potential is nearly unlimited to explore it. And we get a beautiful scene of Clark realized as Kal-El. Like I said before, he's not Superman, and he's not really Superman through any of this movie. He is Kal-El. He's Clark becoming as Kal-El. But he learns how to fly. He learns that he can fly. 
there's some levity in this scene that does not work at all because that's not the tone of the movie. And any time in the movie they try to do something silly or fun, it doesn't work because that's not the tone of the movie. I think that's what people's major beef with the movie is, is that there is not that stuff. But yeah, I mean, if that's your tone, double down on it and go with it. And they did. And I'm perfectly happy with that. So after this scene, Lois goes about trying to find Clark. Because she publishes some article that the Daily Planet won't publish. And we meet Perry White, who Lawrence Fishburne kills it as Perry White. He's a perfect Perry White. And some, some, some of the cast of characters from the Daily Planet. Uh, but we find that Perry will not publish this article because it's too sensational. So Lois takes it and she publishes it on some in some online rag. And I don't know how this implicates the Daily Planet in anything, but... Because she published it, uh, Perry said the Daily Planet might be sued, and he, he's mad at Lois, but he believes the crazy story that she's telling uh, because he, he trusts his reporter, and he understands why she wants to keep her resource, her source confidential because she tracks down Clark and meets him eventually, and she's like, hey, let me tell your story. And he's like, I don't want my story told because I don't trust humanity, basically. Uh, we also find out how Jonathan Kent died. Uh, he let himself die in the, just this ridiculous situation, which doubles down on the paranoia. Uh, it's doubles down on the don't let anybody know who you actually are. Keep your secret identity separate from whatever you're going to become because they will not trust you and they'll hunt you something. But it, it kind of establishes why Clark is so paranoid in protecting who he is uh, as he's out there helping humanity. Anyway, uh, when he activated the ship, it alerted Zod, who had escaped the Phantom Zone after Krypton was destroyed. Uh, he and his co-conspirators wandered the galaxy, going to old Kryptonian outposts, trying to recover technology that they could use to, to start life anew, to build a new Krypton. But they needed the Codex, which contains all the genetic information of Kryptonians, and they know that Jarrell sent it to Earth with Cal. They don't know it's in Cal yet, but they know it's with him. So the Kryptonians come to Earth, they say, give us to all humanity, uh, across all devices and frequencies and languages, give us this, this person, this one of ours, our species, oh, this is first contact, by the way, give us our, our guy or we will destroy your planet. After some soul searching, Clark turns himself over to uh, the U.S. military in the guise of or in the form of Kal-El in his Superman outfit. And he gets to talk to Lois, uh, share with him some of her philosophies, then we find out that the uh, House of El symbol actually means hope, which is, is beautiful. It may feel a little shoehorned, but I still like the sentiment. And Clark turns himself over to the Kryptonians. Uh, we meet some, some, uh, some of the cast of military characters. We already met one of the military guys, Christopher Maloney from uh, Law & Order. He's awesome. He's great in this. Uh, we meet General Swanwick and Dr. Uh, a scientist who's canonical to the Superman comics. And so Superman turns himself over to the Kryptonians. Zod reveals his plan to Cal that he is going to destroy the Earth so he can terraform it to uh, become a new Krypton, which will destroy all human life. Cal's like, I can't help you, and Zod's like, screw you, because we're going to do it anyway. 
Lois manages to use the Kryptonian key. Well, I'm not, I forget how she got it, but she uses the 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 Jor-El AI to take control of the ship to release her and to release Cal to uh, go about stopping Zod and his plans. Zod attacks Clark's mother trying to find the codec because they don't know yet that the codec is within Clark. Clark is like, oh, you gonna fuck my mom? Don't touch my mama! And he tries to beat the shit out of Zod. Uh, and under the circumstances, he may have been able to, but Zod has a whole army, and so Zod's army comes and destroys Smallville. Like, it's like one city block that they destroy. They destroy all these branded stores. But the, the destruction, the porn destruction starts, and it's awesome. That's what this movie is, and either you're into it or you're not, but it's, it's beautiful destruction porn. And it escalates quickly after Smallville when they we, we reach Metropolis. The movie turns into 9-11 times 1,000 destruction porn. And it is, like, hopeless. Like, you don't really get a feel for how awful it is. Like, you see it. You see how awful it is. You see people being crushed by this weapon that they're going to use to terraform the Earth. Because one side of the weapon is floating over Metropolis and crushing the Earth as it tries to change the gravity parameters of the, the uh, earth and the other side of the weapon is in the Indian Ocean. You see people being crushed as this this gravity machine is like raising cars and smashing the earth and buildings are being smashed and the whole city's falling apart. And there's this plan that they have to uh, stop the Kryptonian machines and it doesn't matter. Uh, Superman goes to the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean site to try to stop that side of the world engine while the scientists try to deal with the metropolis, or the military tries to deal with the metropolis portion of the uh, the, the terraforming engine. And you, we get this scene as in the destruction of Metropolis where, for me, this is, a, this is one of the key scenes of the movie. Because this informs what I thought that uh, the sequel should be about. There's a scene where Perry White and Jenny Olsen and Steve Lombard, who are the other people that we meet from the Daily Planet from uh, earlier are trying to escape the uh, the collapsing buildings. And they run into an alley as one of the buildings is collapsing, and uh, the building collapses in a way that Jenny is trapped under the rubble, but she's still reachable. And so they're trying to, like, uh, open up some rebar with, like, a stop sign or something so that they can pull Jenny out as the waves of destruction, the raising and falling waves of destruction that are spreading, raising and falling, crushing everything in their wake, are getting closer and closer to where they are. And so Perry makes Steve Lombard come and help him try to save Jenny, and Jenny's terrified. And on the other side of the Earth, Superman is fighting this ridiculous fantasy uh, destruction engine machine in a very cool, Lovecrafty-looking science machine fight scene. And as he's losing to this machine because the machine is cranking out some Kryptonian atmosphere that that we established for some reason takes away Cal's powers. The waves of destruction are getting closer and closer to Perry White and Jenny Olsen and Steve Lombard and they reach a Toy Story moment where all is lost and they just hold hands knowing that they're going to die. That's when Superman stops the linked machine on the other side of the world in the Indian Ocean, which is itself a beautiful scene, but the trauma from that moment, the trauma where they know they're going to die in this shared moment where they stopped to accept that they're going to die together because Perry was not going to leave 
Jenny trapped in that building, and it's beautiful, and that should have been what they dealt with in the second movie. Not just for that group of people, but for all the Metropolis, that trauma, the rebuilding, the rebuilding of trust, and grief, dealing with grief, and Clark becoming Superman through his own grief, his own helping Metropolis rebuild. That all should have been part of that second film, because by the end of this film, Clark is still not really Superman. He's Kal-El, and he's Clark, but he's not really Superman. He hasn't gotten there yet. But the Battle of Metropolis continues, and the ball's dropped on this scene, because I'll skip around a little bit. By the end of the movie, we see some casual interaction with Jenny and Perry and Steve Lombard, where it's like, ha ha ha, Lombard's a piece of shit, ha ha, he wants to troll the secretary pool to find somebody to go to this basketball game with him, because he's trying to get laid or whatever. I feel like the interaction between Lombard and Jenny and Perry's not going to be like that. It's not going to be Lombard, you piece of shit, because they shared this this experience. But, uh, as I said, any any point in the movie that they try to do levity just fails horribly. And I'm fine with that. Just don't do it. That, that tone doesn't need to exist in this project. It doesn't work ever. Anyway, the Battle of Metropolis continues. The military succeeds in destroying the, uh, the planet smashing, the terraforming engine that's on this side of the world which kills all the remaining kryptonians except for zod so metropolis is in ruins at this point and clark and lois reunite they kiss in this charnel pit this million people graveyard that is metropolis which is really weird and then of course zod blames zod has a line about you know my only purpose is to uh, protect my people, and because of you, I have no people, which is fair. And then he goes, he sets about trying to to kill Clark and all of humanity if he can. So they have this terrible knockdown dragout still in the city, where they pretty much jango the rest of of Metropolis to the ground, like they are crushing the city. And there are still people around, but there are no people in the buildings that they're going through, or whatever. But they they do people shouts from time to time the people are in awe but the people shouldn't be in awe the people should be in like utter despair like you should see people like with rosary beads just praying to god and just running with their mouths agape in just a wide-eyed horror because they are they're in a situation where they can see death coming and there's nothing they can do and once again i'm still fine with this the like the destruction porn is way up like it goes i don't mind metropolis being dusted the way it does it, it is but it goes on forever as, as Clark and Zod are just so angry at each other. They are just, they are smashing the shit out of the city. So the uh, the fight keeps going. Zod comes into his full realization of his Kryptonian powers. And he gives Clark a real run for his money. It goes into space. It destroys a Wayne Tech satellite. Which is a little hint that Bruce Wayne does exist in this universe. So they're setting up something for the future and crashes back down to Earth in Metropolis, along with pieces of the satellite taking out even more stuff in Metropolis. It's crazy. It is... But it's also beautiful. Like, it's it's kind of awesome destruction porn. Like, this is what's supposed to happen to a an area when two beings of godlike power fight. So we get to the climax of the movie, which is somehow Clark and Zod have landed in this uh, 
train station or something. And Zod's like, if you don't kill me, I'm going to kill every last human, starting with this family. And this, so these four people are cowering in a corner as Zod's heat vision is slowly moving towards them. And so Superman kills Zod to literally save this family, but also to save humanity from the potential destruction that Zod could, could wreak upon humanity. And I don't have a problem with the philosophy of this scene. I don't have a problem with Superman killing under these circumstances, but the way it's set up is stupid. Like, uh, his eyes, you know, move independently. He can just look at the family and vaporize them, or uh, the family could just move as opposed to just standing in the corner. Like, the mechanics, the literal mechanics of the scene are stupid, and it's really like a black mark against that climax. But philosophically, I have no problem with the climax. And then Clark is in anguish because... He has just destroyed his, his race, basically. The last living member of the Kryptonian race besides himself, uh, he is just killed. And so they show that anguish, and then they cut to some, some closing scenes that uh, are not terribly important. Clark is establishing with the military that he is not a threat and wants to be a friend to humanity. By destroying like a multi-million dollar satellite because they're trying to track him and find out where he lives or whatever. And uh, then we cut to Clark talking to his mother in a beautiful scene. But all, the, all the Smallville scenes are beautiful. They're, they're painted differently than the Metropolis scenes or you know the, the scenes on Krypton were. But he's like, I found a way to uh, be able to maintain my identity as Clark and to keep close to information in a way that people won't suspect me. He's going to become a newspaper reporter. So he gets a job at the Daily Planet, uh, which seems incredulously unaffected. Like, uh, some uh, either it was rebuilt very quickly or that building was not jangled into dust. Uh, Steve Lombard's there. They have that interaction I talked about earlier. Uh, he says hello to Lois, who probably helped him get the job. And she looks at him and she says, Welcome to the planet, which is supposed to be a welcome to the planet alien man. Uh, who now knows who he is as Clark Kent and Kal-El. And we see him with his glasses for the first time. He's supposed to be taking on the role of the Clark Kent that we know for the first time in this scene. And that's the end of the movie. And so it does falter a little bit in the end there, but on its own, it's just promise. That is the promise of something beautiful that is to come and that never came. Man of Steel... Maybe it's just the aesthetic. It gets me every time. The actors are doing a great job. It's beautiful. I think it's paced well. Even even the super long destruction porn at the end that kind of wrings every bit of uh, energy and emotion out of you. Still beautiful. Still wonderful. Uh, Zimmer's score is rocking all the way through. And Henry Cavill is is a godlike Superman. He's He looks like Superman. He still looks like Superman. He still wants to do this role. But we roll into a sequel that is not fulfilling of the promise given by this movie. So Batman vs. Superman was a cynical crash grab by the studio. They kind of rolled a bunch of different ideas into one thing, trying to make as much money as possible in one movie and to like hurriedly expand their universe because the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, had so much mind share at that point that they needed to do something they felt. So they did probably everything that the entire movie of a sequel should have been in the first 15 to 20 minutes of Batman vs. Superman, which was 
uh, they had a flashback scene showing how horrific the Battle of Metropolis was for the people of Metropolis through Bruce Wayne's eyes as he watched this destruction uh, being committed as, as people were dying. This is what Superman 2 should, or the Man of Steel 2 should have been about. The effect that that horrible event had on the people of the city and Kal-El becoming Superman because it also shows scenes of Superman doing Superman things and him becoming like a, a worshipped figure around the world as he does these amazing things. They show him not just for Metropolis of the U.S., but for the world, trying to become a, an active force of good, almost an angelic force. And so, of course he's worshipped. So that creates some really interesting questions that are not what at all what the focus of Batman versus Superman is. It's, it's really a kind of boring and stuffy movie. You know, coming from Zack Snyder, it's definitely his style, definitely his movie. Not where I would have gone with it. And it didn't have to be boring. Like, it, it's also beautiful, and it's also, it can be amazing. It's, it's that philosophy of, of generating um, beautiful splash pages, but everything in between those splash pages in BVS is very boring. It's a dry-ass movie, but it doesn't lessen my love for Man of Steel. So I love Man of Steel. I probably will always love Man of Steel. It's not my favorite superhero movie. But, once again, it's probably the superhero movie that I would make personally. Like this regular, isolated uh, person still trying to be the best man he can be under the circumstances of what he's working with. I still think it's kind of awesome, and I still think that take on a potential Superman is awesome. I think the problem is that Clark never becomes Superman. He becomes Kal-El, who should become Superman in the next movie, and that doesn't happen. That's just, that's my take on Man of Steel, uh, a movie that I would suggest you watch if you haven't seen it. It's, it's a master class in the aesthetic of movie making, if nothing else. Like, there's some things that aesthetically that, that Zack Snyder does where I'm like, I don't like that. Like, he uses handy cam, like hand cam in some places. Where I'm like, why is he using hand cam there? But it, it doesn't matter. It, it's still so beautiful. It's so wonderful. Aesthetically... Not perfect, but incredible. Like, I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I like a lot of those movies more than I like Man of Steel, but none of them are as beautiful as Man of Steel is. And I think that's the last word on that. So yes, that is my take on 2013's Man of Steel, which is relevant now because uh, Zack Schneider's cut of his Justice League movie from 2017 is in the news right now. So the, there might be a potential re-release of that movie in the next year or so with the uh, showing the true vision of what Zack Snyder had in mind. We'll see. That's it. Uh, if you'd like to talk to me about this episode or any of my other episodes, you can hit me up on Twitter, janky old broke hobo Spider-Man at Jonathan Blade, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully I'll get a, a guest on the show again for the uh, the next episode. All right. Thanks for listening.